when you open the refrigerator, instead of there being food in there, there's like a long hallway of light, which leads to who knows where. And that's kind of where the moment happens that you transition from the known into the unknown, the transformational moment for people. You have an understanding of what the refrigerator is supposed to be, but then when you open it, you realize that it's more than what it's supposed to be. If the refrigerator can be more than what the refrigerator is supposed to be, then the entire world has the opportunity to be more than what the world is supposed to be. Even more profound is that you now have the opportunity to be more than what you're supposed to be. And this is the transformational moment. People realize that they are not who they have been. Really, they are who they are becoming. They are a future-based being who can define for themselves moving forward who they want to be, what they want in life, how they want to perceive the world, and, and that the world is possible, that their life is possible, that who they are can still be possible, that they're not stuck in this relic of, of artifact that they've, that they've built up over time. That's the power of the Meowth experience. This is Going Boldly, the podcast. Here's your host, Russ, the big guy. Hey, it's Russ, the big guy, and welcome back again. Bren is in the studio today. Howdy. And we have a really interesting guest today, and uh, oh, we're just talking briefly before we started recording. It seems like the ultimate goal here is, uh, is transformation. Both of us strive to have that experience for, the, for our clients, for, the, for our customers, for people that we work with. So it's my privilege to introduce Vince, Vince Kedlubek. <laughs> Pretty good. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Vince Kedlubek. Kedlubek, Kedlubek. Kedlubek. Just not Kedlubek. Okay. No, no extra A in there. Oh, okay. gosh. I have the problem with my name. People add extra D's and <laughs> D's and G's and L's and all kinds of weird, weird letters. You are the founder or one of the founders of Meow Wolf. And are, are you the former director? Are you still I'm the former. I, I'm still a director. I'm still a board member and director of the company. Okay. Uh, always will be a co-founder. Uh, and I am the former CEO. I was CEO from 2015 until 2019, basically, as we got the company up and running and scaled it to the size that we scaled it to today. I, I was a yeah. CEO during that period. Gosh, it's amazing. Um, so uh, Vince is uh, involved with Meow Wolf. And if you haven't heard about Meow Wolf by now, uh, started in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it started as an art collective and eventually turned into, well, like a 20,000-ish 20, square foot experience called the House of Eternal Return. Yeah. So why don't you take it from there and uh, let our listeners know kind of like the basic thing that, uh, you know, you've done this interview, I imagine, 100 times by now. So um, they could find that anywhere. But give them a, a brief sort of uh, history on it, maybe like a short paragraph, and then we'll move on from there. Yeah, sure. Uh, in 2008, we started off as an art collective, basically a bunch of artists here in Santa Fe, New Mexico in their 20s who got together to create this like clubhouse type of thing where we were just like renting out a warehouse. We were throwing underground punk shows, dance parties, and then filling the walls inside of our warehouse with like trash that we pulled from dumpsters and then, you know, calling it art. Yeah. Cool. Um, and we started to, you know, open up our space to like the public and allowing them to crawl around on all of the, you know, disgusting floors <laughs> that we had inside of our space, but they, <clears throat> people were really loving it. Like <clears throat> they were, you know, they, they, they were, they were resonating with what we were doing. And so we just kept on doing that. Like from 2008 until, you know, 2014 for six years, we were just kind of running this collective. Um, 
it wasn't a business, you know, it was, it wasn't meant to really be a business. It was really just meant to like kind of explore um, cultural expression with each other. And then, you know, in 2014, basically, you know, what had started off as a passion project with, for a bunch of 20 year olds became sort of this um, obligation for a bunch of 30 year olds now. And we, we basically all kind of like, you know, needed to, needed to go some sort of direction with our life. You know, we needed to have a career. We needed to think about family. We needed to think about, you know, where we're going to really live. And so, you know, rather than dispersing and giving up on the dream of Meow Wolf, I basically was like, all right, guys, what if we, you know, really try to turn this into a business? Like, what if we did a permanent art experience um, and did it with a proper budget and actually like turned Meow Wolf into an attraction that could raise, you know, that could actually make money. I found a building in Santa Fe. I I went to the author of Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin, who I happen to know here in town. He lives in Santa Fe. That was and a, that's I, the part that I found crazy. And I noticed in one yeah. of your one of your talks is like, well, we found a we found an empty bowling alley, so we decided to ask George if if he would buy it for us, and he said yes. And then it was like you just said it, so it was just like <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the nut that uh, most people can't crack is the financial part. Yeah, I would say that it's, you know, it's a, it's a nut that can't be cracked largely because there's there aren't there aren't angels out there like George who are yeah. willing to take such big risks, you know? I mean, he's somebody who cares a lot about culture and storytelling and, you know, basically just cool cool stuff. Like he just he he's still very much uh connected to that. And and he it was it was before he had a proper business manager in his life, and so he kind of made the decision unilaterally for himself that he was going to buy this building, and um, he he basically he took he took us up on the offer, and so you know he leased us the building, we raised money, we built the House of Eternal Return, as you mentioned, which became our first permanent uh, multimedia art experience, and it's in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and that project just completely took off. Like it opened in 2016, and it it was like a, an overnight success, um, became New Mexico's number one tourist attraction. It was families coming from all over the country, all over the world. And we, before we knew it, we were sitting on millions of dollars <laughs> and, um, having never done a business before, having never had a business, you know, having business experience. So I was running this, you know, running this company, um, and, you know, pretty quickly realized, all right, like Meow Wolf could be a national, brand. It could be, become an international brand. It could expand into other markets. So <clears throat> we, um, we signed leases in Denver, a really massive project in Denver, Colorado. And then we also signed a lease in Las Vegas, Nevada. And for the, over the course of the last uh, five years, um, since 2016, we've basically been developing these two major projects, one in Vegas and one in Denver. Um, Vegas just opened uh, about two months ago, and Denver is going to be opening at the end of the year. And so we, we will have three permanent, uh, diff completely different, completely unique uh, multimedia immersive art experiences uh, open here in the Southwest. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's where we're at now. And, uh, you know, I think that so far Vegas is doing very well. We believe that the expansion and, you know, the growth of the brand of Meow Wolf is going to continue to continue to happen. It's a crazy ride. It's an amazing ride and we're still on it. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's freaking mind blowing to me. I, uh, when I first yeah. heard about Meow Wolf, it was, you know, in the 11th hour, 
and everything was pretty much done already. And I think maybe you were about to open. And I just, uh, I don't even know how I got connected to you on LinkedIn. When I saw it, I was just like, this is insane. Like, how did this happen? And, and you know, how did a bunch of knucklehead artists, which is, I know a lot of artists, okay? So, the, like you, and there must have been a couple key people in there who had, you know, a whole brain to work with, and they weren't just totally out in left field. But they're brilliant, brilliant artists. Yeah. So like when I, when I saw this huge, huge, it had to have been a business to get to the point that it was at, there's no way I could have, you know, stumbled into it without some kind of organization. So what was the conversation, you know, someplace in that back room, it's like, we're going to, let's do this thing. And uh, I know all the creative people were like, yeah, let's do it. But who was the one that said, whoa, 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 how are we going to pay for this? Like, who who were those three people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Okay, so, yeah, basically, you know, like, I brought this whole concept to the team. Here's this building. It's going to cost $3 million to to have this building, you know, purchased and renovated. And I'm going to go to George, and I'm going to ask him to to do that. And then he's going to sign a lease with us. And then we're going to have to go out and raise another $3 million to build the project. And keep in mind, these numbers, <laughs> um, these numbers are very big numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and so to a group, they, you know, a lot of them are just like, okay, like that, that's a big dream, Vince. Okay. Um, and uh, there's, there's many who basically just said like, we're in over our heads. We can't do this. This is crazy. Yeah. And some of, some of, some of them, like some of the founders, even, you know, the people who we, who we call founders, they, they left town. Like they said, you know, good luck. If it, if it gets some traction then call me, but you know, for now I'm going to go and, and start a life somewhere else. Yeah. And and that's what happened. I kept looking at it and we got George to sign the lease uh, to buy the building and then sign the lease and commit 3 million to renovating the building. Which well, was, that was, know, it was fuel. That was definitely fuel. To and the, then that was huge fuel. Yeah, yeah, of course. Then I was able to, then I did a little bit of business training for myself. I did some classes and I, and I went to some, uh, uh, business accelerators and I just started to take on the role of the CEO, um, and, and really adopt the, and I, you know, I had some experience with profit and losses, I had some experience with business plans because where what I used to do with Meow Wolf, like as we were a collective, was I would throw parties. Yeah. And I was always the one who would be like, all right, we're going to throw a party. We're going to pay the DJ this much. We're going to yeah. do this much for decoration. We're going to buy this much food, this much booze. And then here's what we're going to have to charge people at the door in order to make all of this work. And so that was like the real basic business plan stuff that I was able to, you know, kind of then just convert into a much, 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 much larger business plan. But it was essentially the same skill set, you know? And so all the artists were like, you know, all the artists uh, that were part of Meow Wolf were very excited about um, the opportunity to have jobs, to turn sure. this into an actual, you know, profit, profitable business. And, but what, what I did really is like, I identified six of us, me included, who were always at the core of the, of the collective. We were always the ones signing leases. We were always the ones having conversations with um, venues or having conversations with the media. And so the, basically the ones who were like at the core were the ones who I invited in to be uh, part of the founding group. Right. Um, and they're the, they're the ones who really were the consistent ones over the course of, over the course of the eight years that we had been operating. And so, yeah, that's, you know, luckily we had a good amount of founders um, who had some business sense and were willing to, you know, really truly sacrifice their lives and put their names on the line and put their credit on the line um, in order to um, build, you know, build a, a true business. So it was, um, it was a lot of willpower 
um, and a, and a lot of just belief, you know, and, and like any artist knows you, when you create something, you start with vision and then the vision feels impossible. And then you start working towards completing that vision. And in that process, it feels really messy. It feels really discombobulated. Um, you have doubts, you question whether you're crazy and, uh, but you keep going, <laughs> you keep following through the steps to complete the vision. So it wasn't that different than most art projects. Um, you know, it was just happened to have a lot of, uh, you know, zeros. Yeah. Ones and zeros. <laughs> All right. At what, at what point, at what point in the process did you wake up one morning and feel like you were going to throw up? Cause you were, you realized what had happened and you, Dude, and, and I mean, like, you got terrified there for a minute. I can't even count how many times I felt that. I mean, yeah, we, we had, you know, when, when George first said, uh, yeah, I'm interested. It was like, you know, gulp. And then when, uh, I then took a business accelerator and we actually won, you know, we won first place at this business accelerator and we got $25,000 and it was like, holy shit, we have $25,000 in our bank account. Like this is real, you know? Yeah. And so of course what I did with that $25,000 was I took a trip to Disneyland with the founders. Um, cause that's of course what we have to do with it. Um, and then we, you know, you know, when the first actual investment came in, the first person who wrote a, a, a six figure check into the project, I was like, that's when it really hit me. Like this isn't, this isn't fun and games. I mean, it's fun and games, but this is very serious. Uh, this is also like this, I have to be, I have to have integrity to, uh, someone else's money and basically a stranger, like a stranger's money. And, um, and that really shifted. That's when I started to sleep less. And that's when I started to bite more fingernails. Basically that, that moment set me on a path for the next four or five years where I was in a constant state of disbelief, anxiety, fear, and just pure unadulterated passion, you know, driving off of the fuel of, of something uh, that I can only call, you know, spirit. Um, so yeah, it's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think you just in that brief 10 seconds at the end, you described almost every emotion possible there, you know, all at the same time, I imagine in many cases, right? So you're so excited, you're passionate, you're terrified, you're, uh, you're anxious, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and, you're you know, hopeful, every, you know, you're hopeful, you're, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. And every artist, every artist knows, like, you get, you're really excited at the beginning of a project, yeah. right? Like the world, the world, the world is, uh, oh God, the world yeah. is your oyster at the beginning of a project. Then you get like 50, you know, everywhere between 30% into the project up to like 80% of the project. You're basically in a complete state of confusion and panic. And right. like, you have to continue to convince yourself that you know what you're doing because there's just, there's signs everywhere that your project is a disaster. And then, you know, from 80% to hundred percent, you finally just kind of flip into like this mode of like, get it done, just, yeah. just get it done. And, and that's, that, that's basically what it felt. And then once we opened the house and we saw how successful it was, it's like, we experienced that same process over and over again. It was now like, okay, now we have to operate this thing. We have to hire employees. We have to uh, deal with the media. We have to handle these lines that are stretching around the block and, um, you know, we, and then after that, it's like, okay, now we have, now we have to 
move into other cities and, and, and grow into, uh, you know, grow into Denver and Vegas and raise more money in order to pay for those projects. And so, yeah, it's just been this kind of like ongoing um, state of, it's a roller coaster, a rocket ship, a roller coaster. It's just an ongoing state of like uh, momentum that's almost bigger than what you're capable of handling, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's entrepreneurism, right? That's like, um, we come up with a, a vision, an idea, a vision. We kind of assemble it in our head as the way we think it should be. We start to put the pieces together, um, do you know variety, uh, uh, a various amount of due diligence and research, depending on who you are, and move forward through it. And then it's that mess. It's that that's that ungodly mess in the middle. That's where all the uh, different skills are really, really needed. So let me ask you. Let me ask you this one about that part of the process. What types of skills, what types of traits, maybe tools, if you will, could you identify that you found were necessary, you you and the core group, I imagine, right, to deal with different things that were coming up? Because it was mostly all unknown for you. So creativity, I'm sure, was a big part of it. Yeah, you know, there's what we knew we could do was like the the, the skill sets that we already had that we knew we could lean on, you know, was the ability to envision um, envision a project, envision, you know, the, the project as a whole, but also individual projects that were, you know, embedded within the project as a whole, envision them and know, like, you know, from a, from a creative conceptual level, what it is that we wanted to see. And then we also knew that, like, we could develop over time, like our, our, our you know, all of our, our artistic practices, you know, would ultimately result in a, in a product that looked you know, 70% of what that initial vision was. So we generally had faith in those component parts, but like what we didn't know that we needed to, to, to have was like an understanding of um, what it takes to have permanent infrastructure, like permanent sure. code, code compliant, uh, fire, fire retardant compliant, um, you know, infrastructure. And then the project management that it took in order to go through those processes. So like did you trip over all those Vince? Did you trip all over those things like one yeah. at a time? Like, Oh gosh, yeah. you know, the fire department was just here and, and they said, we can't do this thing. We have to take this whole installation yeah. apart. No, like not the whole installation, but like, yeah, like the first time that the electrical engineer from the city walked through our space, yeah, you know, said, Oh, by the way, you can't have extension cords. Yeah, of course. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. not how you do electrical and something like this. For us, we always just use extension cords. Yeah. Or, you know, he would say, you know, you can't just put a piece of fabric. You know, the fire department says you can't just cover a space with fabric. That's, yeah. That's not fire retardant. That's so, a fire trap. You know, yeah, exactly. So we, we, you know, we would learn as yeah. people came through. Um, you know, and I think for us, you know, in the, in the phases of a project, you basically go, we, we, we know this now, we didn't know this at the time, but in stages of a project, you go from, uh, from, from a, a concept to schematic, to design, to uh, fabrication, to installation, to then operation. And what we would do though, like at the time was we would go from concept to fabrication. Yeah. <laughs> Now we would start with concept and then we'd immediately start fabricating that concept and installing it pretty much at the same time. And so we skipped out on, on schematic design and a proper design process that that was the area that we didn't understand as a group. 
and we had to learn as we as we went. Yeah, exactly. So let's take that one for an exa- for an example. So you you have a core group of your people. Um, you're you you realize that you have to have all those intermediate steps. Now, did you hire someone else, an engineer or something, or did one of your group say, "Okay, I'm going to be the person who starts reading up on codes," or "I'm going to uh, I'm going to be you know checking on engineering or or whatever"? Like how what was what was kind of the process? Because you're because you're all problem solving at this point, right? So it's yeah. So we've got problems, problems, problems everywhere. Which is, I mean, life is like that, really, for many people, um, except for you know the ones that kind of just got into their day to day routine and don't want to grow. But for the rest of us, um, you know, obstacles and problems constantly, right? But that's part of the fun of it, really. So yeah. So what? Yeah. So you know, we're, you know, how talk to me about the problem solving part of it? Yeah. And again, like we, we fundamentally believed that we could tackle any problem in front of us. And yes, that was yeah. really, a really important thing like yeah. as an artist for you to have faith that, you know, to, to first recognize, yes, there's going to be a million problems that you didn't expect, but that, but secondly, that you have the capabilities to solve for them. And, um, right. you know, that meant like bringing on an architect and bringing on a general contractor and bringing on um, you know, we had one person in our group, in our founding group, uh, Sean, who was, um, kind of the point person for, for design thinking. Um, but he wasn't trained in it. He just, he just had an eye for it more so than anyone else. And, um, the piece that we didn't, the piece that we didn't bring on to the, bring on to the project early enough was project management. So it's like, we could interface with architects and general contractors and engineers um, and, and, and technologists, but we, but we failed to, we, we didn't bring on intermediaries, uh, project managers who are really good at task management and really good at following up on next steps. So we were kind of in this state where the founders themselves were the project managers and it kind of created in that first project, it really created quite a chaotic yeah. uh, process. I was going to say uh, cool. that chaos. As soon as you said that, I just thought chaos right away. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, and, and, you know, the thing about project management and we, we, we actually just learned, we didn't even discover this until 2019. Like we, we went on from the house in, and then for years after the house had already opened, we were still operating with subpar project management. And, um, because, and, and what we didn't realize, and this is really important for any artist who's listening to this, this podcast, that project management on projects of scale like this, that project management can only be good project management if it has a ton of experience doing it. Like that's not, a, that's not an area that you can hire new project managers, like people who are new to the project management space you have to hire people who have done it for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Yeah. You can have new people working underneath them, but you need to hire experienced project management. It's just, it's one of those things that you can't, you know, you can hire artists that are fresh right out the gate. You can hire illustrators and graphic designers and filmmakers and uh, you know, sculptors, you can hire all of them fresh out the gate. But project management especially needs to have like decades worth of experience in order to be, to be effective. Yeah. And I was going to ask you kind of segued into it naturally. So how did you take what you learned with house of eternal return 
and then applied that towards the bigger ambition of multiple locations? Yeah. Well, you know, just like we did with House of Eternal Return, um, the, the multiple locations really started with um, the spaces themselves. You know, we had we had the vision that we wanted to do multiple locations, but it doesn't. The project doesn't really didn't really kick into gear until we found the spaces. And so, first things first was um, you know working with developers, real estate developers, and working um, you know working in different municipalities and different cities and finding locations that made sense for us and finding real estate developers who were willing to take a similar leap that George took. And so in Denver, we found an amazing uh, real estate developer who was willing to jump off the cliff with us and build a massive 100,000 square foot building for us in downtown Denver. Then in Vegas, we found another real estate developer who was ready to bring us in, believed, believed in what he saw in Santa Fe and said, all right, let's do it. I'm going to take a big risk on you guys and, um, and we're going to move forward. So once we had the spaces, then we could start to design out the projects. We did bring more uh, design into our process uh, early on, but like I said, we failed to bring in really effective project management. So we found ourselves in a similar state of chaos. Uh, The design design team just happened to be part of the chaos. And and that's the thing. It's like, just because you're bringing in an architect or just because you're bringing in a bunch of uh, junior designers doesn't mean that the project has proper management. And so we kind of confused, we kind of confused design process with project management when really we should have just hired project management out the out the gate, um, experienced project management. So, you know, we all of this has been a learning a, a big learning curve. And sure. honestly, we didn't we didn't we didn't learn this stuff. We didn't learn the importance of project management. We didn't learn the the the, the phases of a creative process until we brought in someone from uh, Disney from Imagineering, um, a woman named Ali Rubenstein who is, was a VP level person over at Imagineering at Disney. She came over to Meow Wolf, thank, thank God, and became our chief creative officer. When she came in, she basically did an assessment. She said, you guys have a lot of amazing things going on, but there's, there's some major, major changes that need to happen in order to deliver on your projects in Vegas and Denver. And she brought in a proper project delivery process that... Um, allowed us to actually get to the finish line on, on these two, two, uh, two big projects. So lots of learning. That's amazing. <laughs> Just amazing. Yep. Okay. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit because uh, we kind of glossed over and we mentioned it many times, but one of the really cool things about this is you actually created, you and the team created a home for creative people to be creative, to follow their passions, to be able to earn a living doing it. I'm guessing you probably got him some health insurance and right, kind of, oh, yeah. like, you know, like made him like, okay, welcome to, welcome to the rest of the world and you can like relax and do your thing. Yeah. I mean, it's not that, it's not as simple as you just made it sound. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, there at the, at the basic level, yes, we, we pay, we, we pay a, a solid salary to all of our, uh, all of our employees. We have benefits, we have health insurance. I think for artists who are, you know, used to yeah. having to write write grant applications or go on Kickstarter or, you know, fund their projects in these other ways, 
I think for artists, it, it was a very, very positive um, environment for making a living off of your work. There's some of the other, some of the complications though, you know, in full transparency is that like now as an artist, I'm working for a company and the company ultimately owns the work. And the company also, the name Meow Wolf is the name that people associate with the work, not the personal, not the individual artist's name. And, and that, that's a tough aspect that is, you know, we're trying to, we're, we're, we're kind of always trying to reconcile, um, you know, what it means to be an individual artist within this larger, you know, kind of, you know, corporate entity. And there's challenges with that. And I, and I, I don't think it's for everybody, you know, yeah. like a lot of art, a lot of really great artists don't want to go and work for Disney. Sure. A lot of really great artists may not want to go and work for Meow Wolf, you know, so, so I, I would just say that, that yes, it was, it's great. We've, we've, we've created amazing jobs for the people who choose, choose those jobs. Uh, but it's, but it hasn't been for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, for the people who it's right for, uh, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. And you've, you've got to be committed to creating work that is larger than what you can create by yourself. Like you have to be willing to, to be part of a project that is much, 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 much bigger than just you. I've had to deal with this same, this same struggle, like as the CEO and then, and then transitioning out of being CEO of the company, like it's been a huge emotional process for me to be like, you know, to, to be like, oh, this, this, this entity, this company, Meow Wolf is much, 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 much bigger than me. That's just, you know, just generally speaking, and I think everybody at Meow Wolf probably goes through this process where it's like, you feel like you've given so much of your heart, so much of your passion, so much of your spirit, but that at the end of the day, Meow Wolf doesn't really need you specifically, you know, individually, yeah. exclusively. Um, and so that's, it's a, it's a funny thing uh, to, to go through, especially when you're dealing with art because art is such a personal expression. And so it, there's so much personal emotion, personal uh, expression uh, attached to the art. It's not like you're just completing somebody else's design. You're, you're literally coming up with an idea and then making it happen. And there's the, the, the personal process that we go through there ties you to the work in a way that then becomes very difficult when you have to kind of give the work up to a larger entity. Yeah, so you have to really have your ego in check. I can, I can see that. And also, yeah, totally. also, yeah. And uh, the other, th the other thing is, if you're, which is another great segue. If you are committed to the purpose of the Meow Wolf um, House of Eternal Return, you would be more willing to work in that sort of environment and 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 you know lock your ego up there because the importance is not your personal fame or what have you. It's really the purpose of the experience, right? So you had mentioned the transformation that happens. And so in the coaching business, that's what, that's the Holy grail is to get our clients to the point where they have a transformation, right? It's those big aha moments that, you know, when the light bulbs go off and then they take that massive leap across all those little baby steps that would have otherwise had to have been taken. And, and so you talked about the transformation for your customers or clients or visitors who come to the installation. And I remember specifically you referencing the refrigerator 
in the house of eternal return. What's your idea with the transformation? How does that fit into this whole conversation? Meow Wolf, the, the product that we create right now is immersive multimedia experiences. Um, but, but that's really just like the vehicle that delivers, you know, something deeper for a participant, for someone coming through our doors. What, what we're really doing is we're creating an environment that's outside of the context of the, the knowable, of the known. We're creating an unknown environment. Within that unknown environment, because you, when you create an unknown environment, you're, you're basically uh, activating, you're activating something in, in, in a person that they haven't really felt since they were a child, which is this feeling of exploration and then the reward of discovery. What happens like when you're a kid, the whole world is unknown to you. So you end up having, you know, choosing to explore all over the place and discovering things all over the place. And you're kind of in a constant state of transforming based on the things that you've discovered. And, uh, but that starts to stop or slow down as we become adults. We start to create a knowable world, a context, a known context around us that starts to eliminate the need for exploration and eliminate the need and then and thus eliminate discovery. Um, and so what Meowulf does is it creates an environment where an, an unknown environment where exploration and discovery can happen. You know, the way that we do that is we don't just pop you right down inside of an unknown environment. We, we kind of ease you in. We kind of like let you be the one who transitions into the unknown. And the way we do that in Santa Fe is by the, the first space that you enter is this two-story Victorian house. And the house is very familiar. It's it, um, it looks like a house that you've been in before. It has a living room and a dining room and a kitchen and upstairs bedrooms. And, and you can explore that house, you know, freely. When you get to the kitchen, there's a refrigerator. When you open the refrigerator, instead of there being food in there, there's like a long hallway of light, which leads to who knows where. And that's kind of where the moment happens that you transition from the known into the unknown. The refrigerator is like such an amazing moment for people. I've, I've kind of pinpointed it as the transformational moment for people. And the reason is because when you get to the refrigerator, you have an understanding of what the refrigerator is supposed to be. But then when you open it, you realize that it's more than what it's supposed to be. If the refrigerator can be more than what the refrigerator is supposed to be, then the entire world has the opportunity to be more than what the world is supposed to be. And then even more profound is that you, when you open that refrigerator, you now have the opportunity to be more than what you're supposed to be. And this is the transformational moment is when people realize that they are not who they have been. That's just like, uh, that's just a construct of a bunch of known variables. Really, they are who they are becoming. They are a future-based being who can define for themselves moving forward who they want to be, what they want in life, how they want to perceive the world, and, and that the world is possible, that their life is possible, that who they are can still be possible, that they're not stuck in this relic of, of artifact that they've, that they've built up over time. And that, that's, that's when things really crack open. And that's the, that's the power of the Meowth experience. Wow, that's amazing, right? People have, I, I have refrigerator moments often. And I go in there. Yeah. I I go through there all the time. To your to your to your knowledge, does anybody ever close the refrigerator and turn around? <laughs> Probably so. I mean, people you know, do that in real life all the time. Totally. They would they would yeah. they would they have that refrigerator open before them, and yeah. they close it, and they go back to what they've been doing. Yeah, they don't take advantage of that transformational opportunity. There's there's a lot of people who 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 have their arms crossed. You know, a lot of. A lot of moms and dads who have their arms crossed the whole time and say, I'm not doing it. 
Wow. I'm not doing it, you know, but the the really special stories are the ones where you see the dad, you know, you see the dad from the Midwest with his arms crossed and, you know, his kids wanted to go to Meow Wolf and maybe mom thought that the pictures look cool, but dad just, it does not want to be involved with this unknown, you know, stuff. It's like weird, weird, druggy, you know, queer, uh, obviously liberal stuff. Sure, 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 sure. But then the moment that the dad opens the fridge and walks through the fridge, you know, five minutes later, you find him, you know, rolling around on the, on the ground of, of a, of a fantastical, uh, forest, or you find him climbing into a tree house with a big smile on his face. And that's, that's like, those are the stories that we get really psyched about. That's amazing. I just encourage everybody to go check out these installations. It's uh, uh, just amazing. And I hope to get there soon. Uh, let's move on to a question here. Um, so what are you doing now? I see that you're the head of spatial activations. So is that, is that something that's doing other projects or is that kind of an umbrella company for you or talk about yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. So like in my kind of in my, uh, uh, arc with Meow Wolf. Um, I moved from CEO to then I, I, I then stepped down as CEO, uh, remained on the on the board of directors, and then began consulting the company uh, okay. from a consultant perspective, which then opened me up to be able to use that same consultancy for other projects for other companies. Sure. And so and and the bigger you know the big need in the world and and has been accelerated by COVID is that you know physical space is dead in a lot of ways like yeah. the, the physical world has not had the same kind of attention or investment or tools that the digital world has had and so digital programming is has taken over our lives the iphone and the ipad and the internet has such a netflix it has such better content on 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 those platforms than the physical world has, which is all, you know, has been all fine and good for the physical, for the people who own space in the physical world, because, you know, for the last 30 or 40 years, they haven't had to change their business. You know, the, the same, the same Best Buy or the same Target or the same Applebee's has worked for them for the last 30 or 40 years, or the same movie theater has worked for them. But COVID has really uh, accelerated this trend of, of that business model no longer working. So now what you have is you have a bunch of people who own physical space out in the world who don't know what kind of programming is necessary to make their physical space attractive. And so that's where spatial activations comes in. We basically say with art and with food and with events and with community programming and with spatial computing, with technology, um, your space can actually be something that somebody is willing to leave the house for. And that's the big question. What, why would anybody leave the house at this point? And if you're somebody who owns physical space, you have to ask yourself, how do I compete with Netflix? How do I compete with iPhone? How do I compete with iPad? Uh, how, why would someone leave the house to come to my physical space? And that's, that's, the, that's the question that we're uh, trying to help business owners, landowners, building owners, municipalities, we're trying to help them answer that. Yeah, so timely. And I agree with you. This, has, this had started before COVID, for sure. And I remember reading different articles talking about how movie theaters were not going to get the same amount of people there. There was definitely a trend for people cocooning at home. Stay, I mean, the technology is such, as you mentioned, I mean, we can stay home and have a, a movie theater experience right in our home with not much money invested. So theaters and 
Um, other places that normally would require a, a body to show up there are going to have to be more or event-oriented and more experiential and interactive and all the things that all the things that you're good at. <laughs> it's amazing. That's right. That's right. That's super. For our listeners, so much to pick up on here. You know, check out Vince. A lot of things that Vince talked about really are paralleled in the business world. Uh, educating yourself about different things, uh, getting that core group of people, that team, whether they're actually working on your project or your mastermind group. Your mastermind group doesn't have to be real people. You can have your imagine imaginary conversation with them. You know, learn from uh, learn from those people's experience. Um, we're talking about vision and belief and uh, and the willpower needed to get through. Gosh, Vince, Vin, if you if you don't believe in willpower at this point, Vince and his team are great examples of it. So yeah, uh, oh my gosh, uh, all and, your dreams and and, <laughs> but also, and like, yeah, not quitting, right? Just like don't yeah, quit, keep going. Yeah, you got to keep and you got to you know you got to power through the really difficult moments and yeah. and hold the vision. You know, I think an, another um, you know realization that I've had over this this process is it starts with vision and the vision has to be. Like it needs to be fully baked. You need a fully baked vision that you can believe in and you can believe in it from a creative standpoint, from a business model standpoint, from an operational standpoint, you need to be able to believe in the vision. And then after the vision comes the finances, comes the money, comes the resources necessary to complete the vision. After the resources comes the people, the, the human capacity necessary to then deliver. And then once you have that, you then actually get to delivery. What happens a lot for people is that they half bake a vision and then they start worrying about resources. And so, and, and, and if you start worrying about resources before a vision is actually uh, uh, cooked, you basically convince yourself that the vision is not possible because you're going to ask yourself questions like, well, who's going to make this or where's the money going to come from? Or, you know, but what about the city code? What about fire code? What about electrical code? Like, I don't know these things. And so you start to convince yourself that, it's not possible, but you really have to take it one step at a time. It's vision first, resources, finances, second, people with skill set and expertise, third. And that's, you know, you're paying the money to do the work that you need them to do. So that's why that's third. And then they deliver on the project. It's in that you have to also allow yourself to be separated from the project. Like yeah, that's a tough part. You're, you're the one who had the vision, but you're not the one that's going to make it happen there's going to be a lot of people that are going to help make it happen. And you have to be willing to dedicate yourself to the project, not dedicate yourself to your place in the project. You have to dedicate yourself to the project. So that's a, that's a big step. That's great. You've given us a lot to think about. Uh, Vince, it's time for the questions. You ready? Oh, okay. All right. Stand by. It's time to answer the questions. I double dare you. Okay, it's time for the questions. We are daring Vince to answer the questions. And Brenna has some questions for you, Vince. So here we go. If you could crawl into a fort-like special place and have a conversation with a famous person, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you talk about? Uh, it would have to be Jesus Christ. And I'd want to talk to him about his life <laughs> and his journey and what was going on with him and all his, all his followers. And then were you be were you be asking him like what you know what were you thinking or were you be more like um, we're glad you did this? I would be I would be trying to dig into like you know how how much of the fables are true, uh, like how, how true are the fables? 
um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and what do you actually believe about gay people would be probably another <laughs> question. <laughs> okay. That's a good one. All right. All right. Very good. Next question. I'm, 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 I'm a member of the LGBTQ community and, uh, you know, always wondered like, does Jesus really hate gay people? Well, I think I have two I, wondered that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this room, we have one ally and, and one member of the LGBT. Yeah, <laughs> so, so as far as we're concerned, uh, um, Jesus loved everybody and yes, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't tolerate everybody. He accepted everybody. So that's the way I look at yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Other, otherwise he, he wouldn't have been, uh, who we believe he is. So there you go. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that's a whole nother 20 episodes. Um, who do people tell you that you look like? Oh, gosh. I, I think I'm not. They, they used to tell me that I looked like Kevin Spacey, which is not something that makes me very proud these days because he's such a creep. Yeah. Such a creep. Really? Um, now, did you used to look like him or like if you were, you're, you're, I clean, mean, you don't, you're clean shaven, aren't you? Or you have a beard. No, I'm like, you know, I'm like five o'clock shadow. Oh, okay. Was, yeah, I wasn't sure. The, these days, like, who do I look like? Gosh, I have, it's hard to say. I'm like Polish and Italian and I have a, you know, I have a funny big nose and I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's anyone famous that I really look like. Well, I, I, do you look like someone that uh, Martin Scorsese would hire for a movie? <laughs> yeah, maybe he's like you know one of the one of the first members of you know of a of a mob that gets you okay. know that gets <laughs> off first. You know, oh, right. <laughs> he just has a small part. <laughs> yeah. Right. Outside of the Meow Wolf creations, what is your favorite experience? Um, Disneyland in Anaheim. And it's probably Pirates of the Caribbean, but really close behind that is Rise of the Resistance, uh, the new Star Wars experience. Um, not the land itself. The land, I actually think, is quite the new the new one where you boring. go in and the we went to that. It was very good. The land, the ride, yeah, yeah. where like it's like actors and you it's like twenty five minutes and you're just like in the world like that. That thing was just like holy shit. Then there's also there's also. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, though, is probably like, you know, one of the single most uh, uh, amazing, you know, influences of my life. I'd also say that City Museum in St. Louis is incredible. And uh, my favorite piece of theater that I've ever seen is uh, there's two of them. There's, uh, you know, Ka by Cirque du Soleil in Vegas, which I really hope, knock on wood, they come back. And then the other one is um, Then She Fell, which is a small immersive theater piece in Brooklyn. Also, knock on wood, hope they come back. Wow, that's cool. I mean, you mentioned a couple that I'm familiar with, and and I thought their ability to deliver is exceptional. And so Disney... Disneyland or Disney World, they have just an exceptional ability. Those the people that put that stuff together are just incredible. Yeah. And I saw only one Cirque du Soleil, and it was in Toronto. I can't remember which one it was. It was um, uh, it was a parade or dream. I look at the details. Like I, when I go into something, I like I always look at all the equipment. I look at the concept behind it. How do they put this together? I just I like the details like that as well as the show. And I watched all of the participants in this and they did not break character once in the entire production. Nobody did. The clowns in the aisle, the band, anybody. Um, one aerialist, when he got back to the top after he had messed up something, um, there was just a, like a two-second exchange between he and another aerialist, and that was it. Other than that, everything was like they were in their roles, and it was just amazing. Um, so thanks, thanks for uh, giving them a shout-out, by the way. 
Uh, last oh, one, yeah. last one, Vince, is going to be a little bit of a challenge. And uh, if you want to bow out on it, that's okay. We do uh, coaching. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we talk about are identifying obstacles. It's an important step in making progress and reaching goals and having that transformation. And so internal obstacles exist inside of our minds, like fear of failure or imposter syndrome, and we all have them. Uh, can you name one internal obstacle that you experience and uh, how you deal with it? Yeah, you know, um, the biggest one for me is this uh, feeling of being, you could, you could basically call it imposter syndrome, but it's, you know, it's, I, would, I, you know I don't like that term because um, it doesn't really get at the emotional core of what it is that I'm feeling. What, I, what I'm really feeling is that I'm a scam artist and that I've had to trick my way into success. And this comes, dates back to being in elementary school. And, you know, the way that I would get good grades was by going some roundabout way. I wouldn't, you know, it wasn't just about taking the tests. It was about roundabout ways of, of getting good grades, mm. kissing up to the teacher or becoming a tutor for other kids. You know, I'm not going to do my work because I'm too busy helping other people do their work or something like always coming up with some kind of scheme to get what I wanted. And, and, and that continued into my adulthood where I, I was, you know, arrested a couple of times for shoplifting. You know, I never had proper, you know, college education. So this whole business ride for me has been like, like, you know, like how the hell am I doing this? This must be, this must be some kind of trick. And my, the, you know, that's, that's how I feel. And then the way that I react to that feeling as I bring everybody else into this process of basically it's, it's as if we're buried underneath the weight of impossibility and we're going to somehow trick our way into getting above that weight of impossibility rather than what is the actual truth of the situation is that I'm really good at what I do and that the people around me are really good at what they do. And we're not buried underneath the weight of impossibility. We're not having to like come act from a place of scarcity we can we are actually coming from a place of abundance and of skill set and expertise and so that you know orienting myself towards towards that truth has been a challenge but the way that i do it is by anchoring to the source of it and the source of it is accomplishment you have to be able to recognize true accomplishment like opening the house of eternal return like raising 150 million dollars like going and opening vegas or opening denver or starting my own consultancy like these are all actual accomplishments. And I, I, what I do is I have a practice of putting myself in the moment of those accomplishments, putting myself in the source of it and ignoring the narratives uh, that, that my brain wants to try to convince me of, and instead just be at the source of the accomplishment. And there I am not an imposter. There I am not, I am not a scam artist. I am actually a skilled professional. So that's, that's my challenge. I love that. Being at the source of your accomplishment, like live there. That's super, man. That's awesome. The fruits uh, are evident, right, of, of, of all the amazing talents and skills that you and, uh, and the rest of the team have. So I really encourage people to go check it out. Uh, give us um, a way for people to do that. Give us your uh, website address or your email or uh, however people can get in touch with you or Meow Wolf. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, check out meowwolf.com, M-E-O-W-W-O-L-F.com. And there you can check out the Santa Fe uh, site, or you can check out the Las Vegas site, or you can you can check out the Denver one. Well, Santa Fe is open right now. We have uh, 50% capacity. Vegas is open. It's about to get up to 100% capacity. Um, so both of those projects you can go and check out today uh, if you wanted to. 
uh, tickets are very, very hard to come by. So you have to buy in advance. Oh, that's um, good to know. And it's good. Yeah. And then Denver will be online here. We'll open Denver sometime at the end of the year. So, you know, for those who are, who are being cautious with traveling, which I totally understand, you know, a Southwest Meow Wolf road trip is in your future sometime in 2022. So start planning for it now. Wow. How about spatial activation? Someone wants to hire you. Yeah. Spatialactivations.com. Uh, you can also go to activations.space. Uh, but those, um, you know, we have a contact page. You can see the team that we have there. There's a lot of great individuals that you can you can contract with directly, or you can go through our our consultancy. You know, however you however you wish. And um, we're quite busy, but um, you know, there's some there's some slots open. So yeah, we'd love to 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 bring on some more clients. Okay, yeah, that's super. All right, well, listeners, uh, this is a great episode, and uh, Vince is so busy. We're gonna send him off on his way to do some other work. Please check it all out. That concludes another episode of Going Boldly. I hope you were entertained and you discovered at least one nugget of wisdom or advice that you can put into action immediately. Or maybe you received some inspiration from today's episode. And I'm certain you know at least one person who needs this podcast. Please share it with them. You might be the important link that will change their life for the better. Subscribing means you will not miss an episode. And it will make it easier for me to schedule guests because... I can show them that the audience is growing. So please subscribe. It will benefit us all. Let me know how I can make this show even better. Leave a comment and send me a DM. I read everyone personally, and I do my best to respond to each and every one. As a thank you, I'll be awarding prizes. And to keep you on your toes, the winners will be randomly selected from names I find in the comments, shares, DMs, and from the list of subscribers. Prizes might be Going Boldly merch or products supplied by my guests or just something random and fun. But you have to comment, share, DM, or subscribe to be eligible to win. A special thanks to Brenna Swanger at Waverly Manor Studios for our great theme music. And finally, thanks for listening. Go boldly, keep at it, and wash your hands.